0: Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me Graham Tomlin in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to Godpod 82. And uh, today we uh, are sitting in our usual little room where we're recording Godpod 82, and we have Jane with us. Hello. Uh, we have um, Chris Tilling, who has been, appeared on several Godpods in the past. He's our New Testament lecturer here at St. Elitis. Hello, everyone. Uh, we have myself, Graham Tomlin. And uh, we have a special guest today, which we're delighted to have um, with us, uh, R- Professor Richard Borkham. Hello. And um, Richard, it's great to have you with us. And uh, uh, in case you don't know who Richard Borkham is, and you really should do, uh, he uh, was professor of uh, New Testament, I think it was, at St. Andrews University, um, uh, comes in as a visiting professor with us at uh, St. Malatis College and teaches our students from time to time, uh, written many, many books over the years, and particularly one that we're quite interested in, we'll talk about during today's Godfod, which is um, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which was published back in 2006. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually it was awarded the Michael Ramsey Prize for
1: Religion, is that right, Jane? For Theological Writing, yes, it was, that's right. You were involved a bit in that, weren't you? I was.
0: <laughs> you were indeed, exactly. So, um, and it's a book that's um, uh, made quite a bit of impact uh, around the theological world and uh, maybe even beyond that as well. So um, it's great to have you with us, Richard, and um, Thank you. it's great to have you uh, to ask all kinds of questions and do our usual Godpod thing. So um, maybe a good way to start is to with that book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which is really about um, looking at questions of, of historicity, how much we can trust the Gospels as, um, uh, as records of actually what happened in the life of Jesus. What, what got you into that idea in the first place? What, what made you wanted to, to to write that book?
2: Well, I suppose I used to simply accept the Mainstream scholarly view of these things, you know, which is basically that there was a long period of oral tradition in which the, or, or the sayings of Jesus, stories about Jesus, circulated around the churches, and then the evangelists got hold of these oral traditions and made the gospels out of them. Um, and I suppose I've always thought the oral tradition was probably a fairly conservative um, practice. You know, they they didn't uh, uh, they didn't uh, create new sayings of Jesus as some people think. It was probably a, a, a process that preserved the traditions about Jesus. Um, but I realise that this all goes back to the beginning of the 20th century um, and to some really quite um, questionable assumptions now. We know so much more about oral tradition than they did at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so the kind of questions about that particular model of how the gospel traditions got into the gospels uh, were going around in my mind. I also got very interested in the phenomenon of names in the Gospels. And perhaps this is really what started me on my, as it were, replacement hypothesis about the Gospels. Um, Because it's rather interesting if you observe whether characters are named in the Gospels or not. Mm. And obviously the kind of big major players are named, Jesus major disciples, Peter, Mary, Magdalene, and so on, and, and sort of public persons like Pontius Pilate and name. That's all fairly unsurprising. It's also not particularly surprising that um, a lot of the people who just crop up in one narrative have an encounter with Jesus, are healed by Jesus, and they don't have names. They're mm. anonymous. Mm. Um, the interesting so the phenomena- rich young ruler,
0: we don't know his name. Exactly. Um, all kinds of characters like that that aren't given yes, names yes. at all. I mean, there
2: are dozens of those, and yeah. you w- you wouldn't really expect those names necessarily to be remembered. Mm. Um, but there are some of those minor characters who are named:
1: Simon oh. the leper, Simon the leper, the leper,
2: the leper yeah. uh, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus the yeah. tax collector, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus the blind yeah. beggar, which is actually a very interesting example because you know a named. Disabled beggar from the ancient world I suspect Bartimaeus is the only name mm. Of a disabled yeah. beggar we actually know <laughs> They weren't, weren't people who get named In most of our historical Pretty sources Anonymous you know. in most of the stories um, Now I think To take the case of Bartimaeus, it's pretty clear, actually, in the way Mark tells the story, that Bartimaeus became a follower of Jesus and Mm. presumably was a member of the early Christian community in Jerusalem. Um, And I think his name is given because the story came from him. Mm. And I think he was Mm. kind of always telling this story, probably, you know, the great moment in his life when he was
0: healed by Jesus. Um, so, do you think the original readers of Mark's gospel would have known Bartimaeus? And said, "Oh, yes, they, we know him. That's they might, his story." They,
2: they might have done, um, but I think um, Mark's gospel—I mean, Mark's gospel—would have circulated yeah, very widely. Um, so he may have been known, you know, in some circles and not in others. Yeah. Um, but it's a way of, I think, indicating the source of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so when we've you know, yes. yeah. uh, when we got these names, um, it's an indication that that's where the story came from. And that's why the, the name kind of stuck to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that would account for just a little bit of gospel material. There aren't all that many of these minor characters who are named. But you think more widely. Um, and remember that the gospels are, in terms of ancient literature, biographies. Um, and biographies, contemporary biographies, written within living memory, as the Gospels were, mm. would be expected to be based on eyewitness testimony. Mm. How do we know what, who the eyewitnesses were in that case? You know, would early readers, hearers of these Gospels be, as it were, looking out for mm. who the eyewitnesses mm. were behind uh, these these stories in the Gospels? And are there
0: other, other examples of other biographies like the Gospels in the first century in in. Greek writing.
2: Yes, we got quite a lot of biographies, um, okay. g- Greek and Latin, um, of people like military generals, politicians, philosophers, right. and, and so forth. And they all um, follow
0: a particular genre, a particular form that the Gospels fit into. Yes,
2: it's a fairly flexible form, you know, and in some ways the Gospels are a special form of it, because Jesus is not your average mm. person you write a biography about. Mm. But they, uh, you know, that, that's what people would have thought the Gospels were, you know. It, it's mm. really important, actually, what what do you think a piece of literature is? It's Mm. what sort of literature, because that tells you how to read it. Mm. Right, right. You don't read poetry the same way you read a phone book. That's right. And you don't read a book of short stories the same way as a novel. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You could be very misled if you started thinking it was, you know. Um, And I think a biography of someone within within recent memory... um, would lead to the expectations it's based on eyewitness sources. I think that's the particularly key oh. thing, mm. that people would, as it were, go with the genre of literature. Um, and if you take Mark's Gospel, um, obviously Jesus is the most named figure, but after Jesus, Peter. And mm. Peter, Peter is named very, very frequently, right through the Gospel. Mm. Um, he's also the first disciple to be named in the Gospel, You know, almost the first person to be named after Mm. Jesus and John the Baptist, Mm. um, with some emphasis, actually, on the name at that point. He's the last person to be named Mm. in uh, Mark's Gospel and very frequently uh, throughout. And I think people would be likely to take that as an indication Mm. that Peter was the main source.
0: So that's, there is a, an early Christian tradition that I says that. Also, know, also an early Christian, yeah. yes. Um, yeah.
2: A guy called Papias at the beginning mm. of the 2nd century who's the earliest record we have of anyone mm. outside the Gospels talking about the Gospels. Mm. Um, says that Mark compiled the Gospels on mm. the basis of Peter's preaching. Yep. But there's one, one very interesting other point about Mark which I think corroborates that is that there's a chunk of the narrative where Peter is not present. Um, mm-hmm. When Peter denies Jesus, uh, and then he drops out of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So so the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the discovery of the empty tomb, mm-hmm. those stories, which of course are absolutely crucial for the narrative. If you, if you want eyewitness sources, those are the bits you really need eyewitness mm-hmm. sources for especially. Mm-hmm. And Mark provides them. He introduces at that point the group of women disciples of Jesus, who Mark hasn't mentioned previously. And he talks about them at the cross, um, observing, watching. He talks about them at the burial of Jesus in the tomb. And there they are watching. Oh. Keep saying they watched and saw. They hardly do anything else in the story except watch and see and observe. And then, of course, they go to the empty tomb and but That's telling see the readers that, that here were
0: people who were, who saw this, who saw it happen, and absolutely. were reporting. And absolutely. therefore, absolutely. something that, that so, yes, yeah, so you get Simon right.
1: of Cyrene and yes, Joseph Simon of Cyrene as well. And, yeah, yeah. So, so
2: mm. just at the point where Peter's witness kind of runs out, yeah. Mark is very careful to tell us who who replaces mm. him, as it were. Mm. Um,
0: yeah, How fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. Um, chris as a, as, a, as a fellow new testament scholar um how, how do you read this book i mean how significant was it do you think within the field of new testament studies
3: um it was a very very significant book and and not only because of the argument but because of who was writing it uh internationally not as next to you at the moment yeah well yeah <laughs> i'm going to embarrass you a bit now no um. no no I, it's this was someone who needed to be taken seriously, and it was someone who was cha- challenging a paradigm. You know, this for 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 decades throughout the twentieth century, the gospels were were read as collecting together largely anonymous. Um, uh, oral traditions, which were circulated around in the church, and you have the conservative aspects of those who would say, "Well, the the tradition remained roughly the same." But then you'd have others who would say, "Well, the tradition was radically altered," mm. and and uh, and that means what you get in the gospels is largely made up by the mm. church. and And Richard Borkham uh, comes on the scene and puts forward a very different understanding of of how tradition was carried in the early church. In other words, it was, it was located with key eyewitness tradents, named tradents, people like the Twelve. Uh, and in, uh, this, this shed light on the Gospels as well, because all of a sudden you've got these, these names uh, most people hadn't really even concerned themselves to look at. Uh, and, and this is a hypothesis that explains why they're there or why they're absent. And um, a whole host of other. I mean, I, I described it in a review as as a, as a bomb on the playground of New Testament scholars. This particular book, um, mm. yeah. And yeah.
1: One one of the many things that I loved about the book, still love about the book, is that it's always struck me. I'm I'm primarily a um, a doctrine specialist and a church history specialist, and I've always been very struck at the fact that um, New Testament specialists seem to have treated the New Testament as though. Um, it had a sort of cordon sanitaire around it between the New Testament and the early church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you see the method in the early church, you see the earliest church um, leaders and writers referring back to um, their sources of authority um, and simply taking it for granted that everybody needs to know that, where are we reading these Gospels? You know, where do mm-hmm. they come from? Um, and yet the New Testament has has been treated as though there are no um, parallels, there are no meeting places between that method and the way in which and the New Testament did. Actually, in a way, the
0: New Testament documents came out of a community that was, in some ways, a relatively small community of people who, who knew each other and mm. they knew the last generation and the generation before that. And presumably, these names would have been, would have been um, kind of remembered. I mean, yes, I, yes, I often think yes. of that, they were Rufus yes um yes. you know who who, who and there's a, another reference to Rufus isn't there anything else elsewhere where there's a, a sort of Romans, sense of, yeah. exactly yeah. You know, it, was he was he in the church in Rome, did he have a kind of connection mm. with that was that story mm. sort of retold, mm. Mm. and people thought oh yes, yes, there should be no Rufus and so on yes that, um, actually this comes out of relationships this 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 document it 's not a as you say a kind of a set piece that is distant mm. from the rest of the early church yes 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 the um because I guess one of one of the things about the gospels. Uh, in the past people have read them, is, is to make quite a strong distinction between the synoptics and, and John. So the synoptics are you know, good and historical and John is all a little bit imaginative. So and, the synoptics
1: you know, kind of being thing. Matthew, Mark and Luke, just in Very case. Very
0: good, from Jane, <laughs> reminding me to get my audience right. Um, as you read them, do, do you make that same distinction between the synoptics and, and John in terms of eyewitnesses or do you think John is as much concerned with eyewitnesses as the other three? I
2: don't, I don't make the distinction in terms of eyewitnesses. In, in fact, I think that John's Gospel is the only one that was actually written by an eyewitness. I think I think yeah. eyewitness testimony is very close behind the text of the other three, yeah. um, as in Peter's case with Mark. Um, but I think in the case of John's Gospel, the disciple the Gospel refers to as the disciple Jesus loved, yeah. um, I think claims to be the eyewitness who wrote the Gospel, and yeah. I yeah. see no reason to doubt that. Um, it's almost certainly, of course, the last to be written of the four, the early yeah. church tradition, was that, John wrote it uh, uh, late in his life. Um, so I think, it's, I think John's Gospel is the product of, as it were, a lifetime's reflection mm. on what he remembered of Jesus. Mm. So it is a more reflective Gospel. I think it's a more interpretative Gospel. Um, one interesting thing about John's gospel, you know, is how selective it is in terms of mm. events and, and themes. Um, you know, Mark's gospel, which is much shorter, has I think sixteen miracle stories. John has only seven. Mm. But what he's done is to select so that he's got the space. Mm tell the story at length and he's a great storyteller mm. um but not just for the sake of the story but to interpret it mm. um so he and gives because those talk.
0: seven are particularly significant as signs of what he wants to say about jesus
2: indeed i mean they're particularly remarkable cases mm. and but in a sense they're representative you know when jesus heals a blind man mm. in mm. john um, there are a whole lot of other stories of the same sort in in the synoptic gospels, sports, um, and he 's chosen just to give us the one and to and yeah. to develop it you know at some length.
1: And he does tell us, doesn't he, that he hasn't written it all down. Exactly. That yeah, he hasn't no. got space to tell you absolutely everything that the ever happened. The world not fill the, yeah. books, it, the Exactly. Yeah. And I, I okay.
2: think he assumes that his readers will know other gospel traditions, whether from yeah. the gospels as written or, or not. Mm. Um, I think it's very clear he's not trying to give you a complete mm. complete narrative. He's picking things out. Um, but very often, you see, what, what John does seems to me to be actually historically very plausible, mm. Um, one of the things John does, which I think would have really struck people at the time as indicating this is proper history, this is how you write history, mm. is that John is much the most precise of the Gospels when it comes to chronology and locations, topography. Mm. In John's Gospel, mm. you always know where Jesus is, often very precisely. Mm. And you always know within a few months when Jesus that point in the story is because Hmm. John has this series of Jewish feasts in the temple, you know, to kind of date everything. Um, So um, that's what historians, you know, try to do to be precise about these things.
1: So what about the very um, different way in which Jesus talks in John from the way he seems to talk in the other Gospels?
2: Yes, I see that as probably due to John's more reflective interpretation Mm. of Jesus. I I think that um, sometimes if you look through these long discourses of Jesus and the debates he has in John, you will find that sayings that we know from the Synoptic Gospels appear in John just as one verse or two verses. And sometimes there are sayings very like that that appear in John that we don't have in the Synoptic Gospels, but look like traditional sayings of Jesus. And John seems to be, as it were, reflecting around those sayings and drawing out their significance. So so do you think it's a fair
3: comparison to say John's a little bit like a, a portrait of Jesus? Instead of a photo of Jesus, it's a portrait. It doesn't make it any less true, but there's there's real interpretive energy in what has been going on in this portrayal of
2: Jesus. Is that a fair analogy? Yes. Um, I think it depends a little bit what you mean by it. And and I think that's true when one's talking about uh, what Jesus says in the fourth gospel. I, I don't think John sort of makes up things that happened, as a lot of people seem to think. You know, John wanted to make a theological point, so he made up a story in order to make that point. I, I don't think there's any need to think that at all. Mm. Um, and historians in the ancient world, you see, were allowed to give people words to say mm. when they didn't have records, provided, that, mm. provided what they made people say was true to the person mm. and true to the situation. Mm. So you couldn't just use someone as a mouthpiece for your own ideas. Mm. You, you're, you're really trying to tell people what Jesus would have said.
0: Have you see Josephus, the... Century historian does that, doesn't yes, he? He seems to make exactly. up speeches for people which are not his own ideas but they're trying to represent this is what this person might have said. Yes, exactly. And, um, but you can't imagine Josephus wrote down every single word because he often wasn't there. Exactly. But yes. I guess something similar yes. is going on there.
2: Yes. But you see, I think the author of the, of the fourth gospel, because he was an eyewitness himself and because he had evidently been very close to Jesus, you mm. know, he's the disciple mm. Jesus loved. He sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper because, mm. you know, they were, they were really, really good friends. Mm. Because he felt very close to Jesus, I think he felt entitled to interpret what jesus said and to help people get really profoundly into the
0: kind of things jesus was talking about and That therefore gives what john's what john says about jesus more weight than say something like josephus who is slightly imagining what so-and-so might have said at a particular point yes, yes. here you have a very close relationship someone who knew jesus well and therefore you take their words much more seriously when you read them uh, even if it's not the very words of Jesus, it's a meditation on those. You take those words still very seriously because this is someone who knows the heart and mind and soul of Jesus. Exactly. And
1: who's presumably spent all of the intervening years being asked questions about Jesus yes, and talking um, about Jesus. Yes. So what you've got is a lifetime's worth of the questions people have asked, mm-hmm. um, the themes that that he wants people to understand were, were central to Jesus and the what it reminds me of very slightly is um Julian of Norwich's Norwich book the revelation of divine love of um of which we have a version uh, a short version and then a version that she produced um half a century later <laughs> when she uh, she spent mm. all the intervening yes. years meditating on what god had showed her in those early visions yes. mm. and and the connections are I mean, it's it's clearly the same material, but so much deeper because she's gone on talking to Mm -hmm. God and people have gone on asking her to explain what it means. Um, And, you know, that's a medieval um, piece of work, not an an eyewitness testimony to Jesus. But you can see the similar kinds Mm. of patterns. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Did you you find as you um, as you started out on the project and carried on reading the Gospels again with this idea in mind, The other clues began to reveal themselves to you that made you think, yeah, this theory works. Well, i tell you what I've been doing most
2: recently, which is uh, further support for the idea that Peter is behind Mark's Gospel. Mm -hmm. And this relates to the geography of the Sea of Galilee, because Mm -hmm. Mark has a lot of geographical reference, mostly referring to the area around the Sea of Galilee. Mm -hmm. Mark has six journeys across the lake, actually. That's the most in the Gospels, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. from one place to another across the lake, And people have often said, um, Mark obviously knows these names of places in Galilee, but he doesn't really know very well how they fit together. You know, he obviously didn't know the area. The the journeys don't quite work properly if you plot them on the map. I got to thinking about this and thinking about the fact that nobody in Galilee in those days would ever have seen a map, whereas we all have, we scholars, all have maps of galilee in our Mm. mind you know and we 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 think of the sea of galilee with its west side and its east side and and so forth Um, what peter and other people of his type would have had are mental maps which is what we all have the sort of maps you build up in your mind geographers nowadays very interested in cognitive maps a lot of study of them and it I, i got to thinking about this and for very in various ways it came to seem to me that Mark's Galilean geography makes excellent sense as the mental map of a Capernaum fisherman. Mm. Oh. And it has to be a fisherman. It's very much a fisherman's map mm. of, of the area. Um, one of the problems is Mark keeps saying they went to the other side. And mm. we all think it means east to west. Mm. But if you lived in Capernaum, which is in the northwest, and the, the territory that you would thought of as your home territory would stretch somewhat to the west and east of Mm. Capernaum. Um, The other side of the lake would not be east or west. It would be across the lake Mm. to the area that's kind of opposite Capernaum, Mm. um, which was mostly Gentile territory, um, where they would go to fish, actually, good fishing grounds just off the coast there, but they wouldn't Mm. land, usually, no reason to do so. Um, That would be the other side. Mm. Mm. And once once you define the two sides differently geography yep. all fits into place
0: yeah, fascinating mm. yeah And what, what, what's been the um the response to the book from maybe more skeptical scholars people who uh would would, would um would have tended to take yes. the older view of the gospels that um that uh, there's a fair amount of um imaginative reconstruction fiction going on in there as well um and know, chris whether you have any comments on that from your um knowledge of the new testament scholarly world yeah well there's there's
3: a a couple of different camps really. There's there are, are those like James Crossley from from Sheffield who uh who who quizzed Richard once at the Society of Biblical Literature on on the reality of miracles because he he couldn't accept yeah. them firsthand. So so if we've got eyewitness testimony of miracles then how's a reasonable person meant to believe this Are we meant to believe miracles? the miracles of Zeus and same sort of question um there are also those who are who are raising questions at the moment about the reliability of memory and I'd love to hear Richard talk about that um as well uh but
2: but,
0: yeah
3: there's there's others
0: reliability of memory
2: yes I had a chapter in the book on eyewitness memory Mm -hmm. um which was actually the first time anyone had brought psychological research on memory Mm -hmm. into the field of gospel studies and a number of people have done it since I did. Um, and there's a huge body of literature now, you know, experimental mm-hmm. data um, on how we remember. Um, and what it does is inform us about the sorts of things we remember well and the circumstances in which we remember things well. Um, there's a lot of scepticism about eyewitness memory, Um, particularly, I think it's rather disturbing, actually, in terms of eyewitness memory in court, you know. Mm -hmm. The problem with eyewitness memory in court is that you're very often asking someone to remember something that they weren't in the least concerned to observe Mm -hmm. at the Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why it's a problem, and people just don't remember those kinds of things very well. What you do remember are events that were really important to you, that affected you strongly, Mm -hmm. events you were emotional about, Um, and those are the sort of things you've got in the Gospels, really. Mm-hmm. You know, people remembering yeah. the, the one time they met Jesus and were healed by him, something like that, the life-changing event in their life, um, death of Jesus, traumatic mm-hmm. event for those
0: women. And that does make a lot of psychological sense, doesn't it? Yes. I, mean, I, I can remember my wedding day, for example, more than I can remember most days of my life because it was a very significant day. I can remember details about that Whereas yes. other days if you tried to recall... What happened on any random day, even in the last year, I probably wouldn't remember much about it. But very significant events in your life. You probably do remember details about that yes. quite closely. And yes. actually, you're, you also you're quite concerned to get it right because you don't want to misremember mm. something that's quite important in your in your past. So, yeah, I and can also see that
1: those kind sense. of events are the kind of things that you're going to tell people about straight away. Yes, yes. so it's going to set Mm. it in your memory in a particular kind of way if jesus healed you then you're instantly surrounded by people who knew you before you were healed and said what the heck's happened to you (laughs) and you're going to tell it straight away and you
2: go on telling it you know uh, the repetition of a memory is one of the Mm. big features in you know it's not like 30 years ago 30 years on you try and dredge up something you've never thought about in between telling people about it all the time if you think about it i mean i've thought about this in my own use you know and I, I i think this is what happens you you actually quite quickly crystallize a way of telling the story yes, you mm. which you then continue oh, yeah. um and that's part of the reason why it then becomes easy to remember because you've you've as it were outlined the story in
0: in a particular way in which you tell it and they must have told the story again and again and again mm. yes because everyone who met them who then became a christian was like us if we happened to have john in the room now we'd you really keen to know what was it like what did it feel like yes, what actually yes. happened what, what were the details and so you'd them, and yeah, I, have quizzed them yeah I, I can and imagine and Bartimaeus
2: would have told anyone he could get to listen you know exactly, that's, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right, right. Um, and, and also you see um, people who are collecting gospel tradition someone like Luke um, the obvious thing to do would be to go to the eyewitnesses for them yeah. you know uh, he's not just going to Except the oral tradition in the church where he happens to be, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. not the way to do it. The obvious thing is you you uh, check course, with is what the he eyewitnesses says right at the beginning of the gospel. Yes, that's exactly. Um, and many, you know, the more important eyewitnesses, mm-hmm. disciples of Jesus, would have travelled around. You know, um, so they arrive in the Christian community. People would really want to get mm-hmm. from them what they could know. Mm-hmm. And we, we get. Papias talks about that. Actually, he was kind of one one. Mm-hmm. Uh, one uh, degree removed, as it were, from the eyewitnesses. But if he could, if he if he happened to meet, and he seems never to have left the place he lived in in mm-hmm. in, in Asia Minor. But if anyone passed through who had known one of the eyewitnesses, who talked to them and find out what they could tell him, you know, must mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. been a common practice. Yeah. And
0: so, do do you think there were documents at the same time circulating? Because I guess that's part of the older theory about the Gospels. You had things like Q, if it existed, and other. Um, um, actual documents telling the stories that were circulating amongst the early church and so on did that still happen as well or how Um, did that how did the the kind of written down evidence relate to the eyewitness i think it's quite
2: possible it's very difficult to prove but
0: quite possible
2: that there were very early uh collections of jesus sayings or stories about jesus or uh, a form of the passion narrative the last days of jesus cross Mm -hmm. and resurrection um there's no reason why people shouldn't have written these down, things down fairly earlier. Mm. I, w- I would imagine that there could have been, as it were, mini-gospels, which were not mm. really functioning like our gospels, but were basically notebooks for preachers who mm. wanted um, mm. to be able to quote sayings of Jesus or tell a story, you know, when they're presenting the gospel mm. uh, to people. Um, so you might have got these rather informal, small collections, mm. which therefore have not survived, uh, you know, once you've got the gospels we've got they would not be of much interest anymore sure. so yeah. it's these gospels that have survived
3: yeah. might yeah. be worthwhile saying as well just cause we've been talking about jesus and the eyewitnesses which is quite a quite a long book quite a big book and uh, richard has written uh you know these very short introductions oxford university press uh, there's a, the one on Jesus was written by Richard mm. and you can download that on Kindle and it's very easy it's very cheap highly recommended little <laughs> book actually very good what's it called Just Jesus Just Jesus a very short introduction excellent yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, just one um, final question because time flies fast at the God Pod as you know um,
1: when we're enjoying ourselves that's right? I do. Uh,
0: and I'd love to ask Jane and Chris first as people who read the book and then get Richard's take on this Um is um, how does how does the book affect the way you read the whole Bible as a Christian? So having read this book, having t- taken a bit of a new look at the Gospels through seeing it as the testimony of eyewitnesses, does it actually change the way you read the Gospels? How does it affect the the way you read um, the Gospels in particular and the Bible as a whole um, as a Christian reader rather than just as a, as a, sort of a scholar, if you know what I mean?
3: Mm, yeah, well, I, one of my first reactions i i've i've i have a lot of things to say in response to that but i'll focus on just one uh, often when i've watched a film on jesus there's a sense of feeling uh, astonished that jesus really was human mm-hmm. do, do, do you know what i mean yep. you, you see this human walking about interacting with other humans and it's very easy to forget that jesus is what is a human, uh, and to uh, to make it all so uh, spiritual. And I think reading Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, what it did for me was was reminded me that I'm dealing with real people in real relationships. These names were about real people, not just fictional creations. And that was a mm. bit of a jaw-dropper for me, I must say. Mm.
1: I mean, I found um, as I found again, just listening to Richard just now, is um, it makes me want to go back and pay attention properly. Mm-hmm. Um, all there are a number of little things you've said which um, I, I was che- I was flicking through the Bible while you were talking and thinking, oh well, yes, that's absolutely right. And those of us who feel that we know it quite well can get so we're not actually paying attention. Mm-hmm. To it, mm. and actually, that's one of the things I absolutely love about the book. Is it makes me go back and and you say something, I think so. So you go back and look it up, and it is so. Um, and, but there's the, all the detail there. But I think for me, what was um, so so profoundly significant about the book was, um, and it was one of the things that judges said uh, when we awarded the Michael Ramsey Prize to it. Is that it's it's the question that as Christians we're faced with over and over and over again. This is. The primary witness to what we claim is the truth of the whole world. Mm. Is it to be trusted or not? Um, And it's a question, I don't know about you, but I get asked over and over and over again how do you know? And of course, you don't know in a way that means you can drown everybody else because they're wrong. Not that you would (laughs) want to do that anyway, but you know what I mean. It's not a sort of knockdown argument, but it actually really strengthens. Um, the, the, the truthful foundations of our faith, which gives us a way of saying, well, there is this and there is this and there is this. Um, that gives us a very, very strong ground for the claims that we're, we're mm. making. And that's just hugely important, I think. Mm.
0: And Richard, do did, did you find r- the process of writing the book changed the way you looked at the Gospels and the Bible as a whole and why you read it and how you read it?
2: I think it did. Um, I mean, I've always taken the Gospels very seriously, but I I think it helps to underpin taking the Gospels really seriously. And taking the Gospels really seriously is is all about a real person, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So that um, one of the things about reading the Gospels seriously and continually, you know, is that Jesus keeps on surprising you. Mm -hmm. You keep Mm -hmm. coming across a story. It's like when you know someone very well, but then then sometimes something they don't, something they do surprises you and it makes mm. you think well of course i know them very well but i didn't i didn't have them all wrapped up i didn't know everything about them you know they they mm. can still surprise me mm. uh, and some of the stories in the gospels you might not have paused over and suddenly they strike mm. you goodness is that jesus is that mm. like jesus elsewhere and you have to think about it mm. and, and and it has and it kind of expands your understanding of jesus
0: yeah i mean, i think that that's right i can get that i always get that sense when i visit the Holy Land itself, it just earths Jesus in a way that you, you know, you, and you you go back to the, the, the Gospels and you, you you notice the stage directions of traveling from a place to a place. Yes, yes. And um, and it, there's this phrase, I think, St. Paul uses the phrase sometimes, you know, the man Christ Jesus. And the emphasis on, no, he wasn't some docetic figure floating sort of two feet above the ground who um, doesn't relate in any way to the kind of life that you and I lead, but actually he, he does. He's, he he. This is flesh and blood we're talking about here. And flesh and that, blood that is imbued with divinity, but still flesh and blood none the same.
1: And then that makes it even more extraordinary, doesn't it, that people who knew him and touched him and heard hmm. him and yeah. le- lived with him and ate with him are saying, and this is where we find God I mean that, that yeah. makes it even more extraordinary if you yes. actually take yeah. that historical yes. earth Jesus.
0: yes because yes. the, the more human you make Jesus you, you'd think the less you would think he was divine yeah. but actually and I, I think as both Richard and Chris your work has emphasised actually it was quite early on that the early Christians were saying yes he was just as human as we are but something much much more mm-hmm. well that has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Richard, very much for coming in. And uh, thank you, Chris, for your contributions today. Pleasure. Thank you, Jane, as always. Pleasure. And, uh, well, that was GodPod 82. Um, often with GodPods, we start out thinking we're going to tackle three or four questions. And sometimes the discussion gets so interesting that we don't <laughs> get beyond the first one. <laughs> and that's been our experience today. Mm-hmm. It's been a, a really interesting discussion talking about um, the book. If you want to get hold of it, it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, um, published by... Erdmann's. Erdmann's. And um, you can get it on most bookshops, Amazon, everything else. And the other book, which uh, Chris was mentioning, is just called Jesus. And it, the series is.
3: It's a very short introduction. Uh, Jesus, a very short introduction. Published by Oxford
2: University Press.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you again to everyone. And uh, thank you for listening. And we'll be back again with Godpod 83 before too long.
1: That was Godpod a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.